Hold on a second. <laughs> Toby! <laughs> Toby! Toby's like, there's only room for one hound dog on this podcast. That's what Toby's thinking. <laughs> It's the H-Dog Pod with your host, Michael the Hound Dog Harrison. Hey, welcome to episode 54 of the H-Dog Pod. Normally I go on a soliloquy, good word, about a former athlete with the corresponding number of the episode, but today I'm going to do things differently. With Thursday, January 28th being Bell Let's Talk Day in support of mental health initiatives, I have a very special guest on who wants to tell her story about how she's managed mental illness. One in three Canadians in their lifetime will be affected by mental illness and thankfully, the stigma has been lifted in recent years, but there is still a lot of work to be done to help those in need. I'm honored that my guest today trusts me to help tell her story, and if it helps even one person, especially in these trying times during the coronavirus pandemic, then it'll be so worthwhile. So without further ado, let's get cracking. Okay, now welcome on a very special guest, Heather McKenzie. She's a co-worker of mine who has managed her bipolar disorder and borderline personality disorder and is strong enough to tell her story today. I'm so honored to have you on, Heather. Welcome to the H-Dog Pod. Thank you, Harrison, Hound Dog. Thank you for having me on the pod. It is such a pleasure to be here, and thank you for allowing me to get my story out and and to share with everybody what life with a serious mental illness is, is like. Well, yeah, no, it'll be very educational and informative, and you know, it's a, an important conversation to have. So I'm very, uh, like I said, I'm mm-hmm. very honored that uh, we'll have this. So I guess uh, we'll start off with uh, when did you start to you know you had early signs of uh, potential struggles? I was actually as young as eight. Uh, my my parents had just split up. My granddad had died all within probably about eighteen months, and my mom started to notice that how I was coping with loss and with my emotions just wasn't how an eight-year-old would typically cope. Um, My cousins came over for Thanksgiving when my granddad died and I literally went into my room and played Monopoly by myself instead of conversing with the family and crying and sharing. I I isolated and that's when my mom kind of noticed, well, maybe, you know, there might be something wrong with how she can cope with things. So she got me in with, um, I guess it's a therapy group. This part of my memory is a little bit foggy, but I used to have a therapist come to my school once every two weeks and she would pull me out of class and we would eat cupcakes and cookies and we would play games and do crafts and we would share. And uh, that lasted three years. So that was the earliest um, memory or I guess signs of of mental health issues from when I was a child. And when were you first diagnosed? Uh, I was first diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 17 years old. I was quite young. Um, It was right around the time of my first hospitalization. Um, I had become a cutter, so I physically harmed myself to to cope with things and to deal with things. And my mom caught me one day, and she said enough and took me to the hospital. Uh, That was the first time I, I started medicating with proper medications, and they they diagnosed me with uh, bipolar disorder at 17 years old. How did that affect you? Like, you, what, what, for your day to day life or whatever? What's uh, how how is that affecting you? I mean, high school is high school. I mean, we know kids and teenagers can be horrible to one one another. So there's a lot of bullying elements in there as well. Um, I almost didn't graduate high school, but I uh, I pulled it together and got it done and got to college, which 
was a huge thing for my family and especially my dad's side of the family and uh, graduated from there. The medications through that period helped. Um, when I was about 22, 23, I... My, my current psychiatrist has this great term for something that happens when medication stops working, and she calls it pooping out. Your medications poop out. They stop working. Right. And this tends to be a common theme in psychiatric medications, at least it has been for me, where I can only go so long and then I have to switch my medications up. So the medications I was on when I was 17, by the time I was 21, 22, stopped working for me. So you kind of have to repeat the process of finding what's going to work for you again and, and get you to that stable place. So my day-to-day life when I was in high school, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't good, but um, I got through it. And back then, was it very much, because it's not as, um, you know, it's certainly more, way more of a stigma back then, I'm sure, as it is now. Like, uh, I'm uh, sure you had a lot, a lot of teasing from, uh, you know, classmates and stuff like that. Uh, I kind of, I wasn't so open about it back then. And yes, the stigma back then was horrendous. Um, I mean, this was the 90s when you can basically insult anybody as a joke and it and got away with it. There was a lot of teasing. And I, I mean, I remember I had a good friend commit suicide in high school. Ugh. And I went out for a cigarette um, during one of the breaks. And one of the mean girls decided to sit there and cat call me and taunt me and make fun of me because one of my friends had just passed, you know, like, yeah, like this is what we're dealing with. Like, I mean, I grew up in a neighborhood where it was, it was elitist. It was snobby. um, And there was just a lot of mean. And I know I was never, I know there were situations where I wasn't the best person, but I mean, a lot of what happened was just way blown out of proportion. That's brutal. So, yeah. uh, I, I had a buddy as well. Uh, not, not a great friend, but a, a guy who was a really, really nice kid in high school. Same thing. He also killed himself because there was maybe eight or so guys in the gym class who were all would gang up on certain people, myself included, to a much, much, much lesser extent. But occasionally they'd sort of pick on me. And yeah, I guess he'd had enough with them. And it just, oh, it just breaks my heart to think that, you know, I was thinking about him the other day. It's like, you know, that would have been, you could have had 20 more years of his life. You know, it's just so sad. Yeah. He's such a great, great kid. And that was the same with, with my friend. Like, I, I, I'm not sure of the extent of his being bullied, teased and whatnot, but I know he definitely had his struggles that he just didn't have an outlet to, to, to heal himself. And, you know, I saw, like, my friends walking to the store, and, and we called them the hockey jocks, would start, you know, yelling fag and homos and, and just all these horrible slurs at them. And one day my friends um, actually turned around and just kissed <laughs> and kind of gave them the finger and walked away. And they're like, what are you going to do now? Like, this is what you wanted us to do. We're doing it. So I, I think I can't speak for what high school and what it's like for kids now growing up. I sure, sure it's not as easy or just, as difficult as when we grew up, but, uh, no, the day to day back then was, it was hard. It was a struggle. I, I obviously I don't know cause I'm who we're obviously spoiler alert years away from, uh, <laughs> from uh, last being <laughs> high school, but you know, I have nieces and nephews yeah. and I hear some stories and especially now with uh, social media, I can only imagine 
how bad it would be with uh, you know bullying and taunting and uh, and right. it seems like maybe I'm wrong. You know, I didn't. I never did. Uh, well, I've never done drugs, uh, and I only started drinking maybe when I was like late late teens. But like, right. it seems like kids at these parties now are having drinks when they're like ten years old. Some of them, and you hear the hear the stories, and I'm sure it happened back then as well when we were younger. But yeah. obviously, I think that would make things even worse potentially because you never know. Some people. It has a different uh, adverse effects on, on certain, some people, of course, are more fun, and other people are like, you know, a lot more mean and nasty when they've been drinking. Oh, absolutely. And I know there's certain medications that I'd be that I would be taking that I absolutely could not have a drink on because it would just change my personality. It would turn me into this horrible, angry person, and I would lose control and black out. So there's it, there is definitely a lot of you know people definitely react differently to different substances yeah oh it's so it, yeah oh that's just brutal uh to think that you know kids back then and still now or you know people are like i said the the stigma is definitely uh you know through conversations like this certainly and, and just uh in general it definitely it's getting better with mental health health yeah. discussions and uh stuff like that but uh definitely better than it was you know 20 years ago but still still a long ways to go and uh yes you know it's a lot to be done um how many times did you go to the hospital? You said you went to the hospital the first time when you were 17. Uh, how many times did you go there? So I have been hospitalized three times. Um, the first time, like I said, I was 17 years old. Uh, the second time I was 24. I was living with my mom and stepfather. And I just, again, couldn't cope. I was severely manic. And I went home from work one day and I downed a bottle of pills and my mom found me in my bedroom and got me to the hospital. Fortunately, the, they weren't, the pills weren't anything that could do serious damage, but, um, they did knock me out. So I woke up the next day, I was strapped to a bed, um, and on a form one, which is a 72 hour restraining order or not, sorry, not a restraining order, a 72 hour mandatory psychiatric care. So if I had left hospital property within that 72 hours, they could issue a warrant to bring me back. Wow. So I was there for, I think I was there for seven days that time. And it was just in a general hospital. So the treatment I got there, it was good, but it wasn't geared towards my specific illness. It wasn't geared towards my need. Uh, the care that I got had definitely been better than what it was um, seven years prior when I was 17. But it still wasn't. I feel like at that time, mental health still wasn't taken as seriously as it could have been. Mm-hmm. So I was there for seven days. And then the third time I was hospitalized was in 2017. So just four years ago, around this time. I was actually depressed. Typically with my bipolar disorder, my manias are worse than my depressions. So I hit my manias more frequently. My manias bring on um, agitation. So I get really snappy at people. It brings on reckless driving, um, spending money, over-consuming in in alcohol, in food, um, not drugs. I, I enjoy my marijuana, but it's, that's under control, but it's, I start getting overindulgent. I stop sleeping and I just get angry. Whereas my depressions, I kind of hide myself in a, in a ball. So 
2017, this was the first time that I'd actually really fallen into a serious depression. Mm-hmm. Everything else prior to that had been a mania. So February 19th, I got home from work and I had a very bad day, but every day back then was a bad day. There were no good days. Um, and my husband, Chris and I had gotten into an argument and I had started cutting again. So I injured myself a little too seriously, uh, a little more seriously than what I had intended to. And it caused a trip to the hospital, but the doctor let me go home, which is the part that kind of confuses me because in that situation, the doctor should have been sending me straight to a psychiatric care clinic, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. I went home. So I continued on. And by the following Friday, I was full blown suicidal. I had notes written. I had a bottle of pills put away. I was, it was the worst place I've ever been in my life. The absolute worst. Um, I was at work and I had my husband, I had, um, a dear friend of mine, Kirsten, who she's my mental health buddy. She, she walks me through, if I'm feeling down, I know I can, I can message her and she understands what I'm going through. She is that person for me. Um, her husband was, was messaging me. And, uh, finally Krista showed up at work and he said, I'm here, let's go. You're done for the night. So I went and I met him and I negotiated because this is what you do when you're, when you're not wanting to, when you're stuck in that place, you negotiate. Well, if I, um, if I do this one tiny little thing, will you do this to help me make me feel better? But that thing that you're asking to make you feel better is typically toxic and not good for you, but it's how you negotiate to get what you want. So I told Chris, the only place I am going is downtown to Camage. Only hospital I'll go to. Me thinking, he's not going to drive me downtown at 8 o'clock at night on a Friday. It's not going to happen. Oh, but he did. He drove me downtown to Camage. And uh, they admitted me that night to emergency where I spent the weekend because they had to find a bed for me elsewhere. And that's the other thing is, is there's actually a lot of people who are in the mental health care system. And... There needs to be more doctors. There needs to be more space. There needs to be more programs. Mm -hmm. The wait times for a general psychiatrist can be upwards of eight months. Wow. You know, someone who is, who is seriously ill can do a lot of damage to themselves in eight months. And, you know, this is something that I think we need to focus on as well as how to handle going to work and handle your day-to-day life with mental illness is we need to focus on the system and what it actually needs but yeah, he, uh, he took me to Camp H. They kept me there the weekend. And then they moved me to their Queen Street location on the Monday um, to a floor called Maui, which is the Mood Auditory Ambulance Intake Unit. So I was there for another 14 days. And when you were, when, when, when you were there, were you, like, were you happy to be there or were you like resisting it and sort of being like, you know, I don't need to be here type of thing? It was almost like a weight was lifted off my shoulders. I didn't want to be there. Obviously, nobody wants to completely disrupt their life like that. And when you get sick, like when I get sick with bipolar disorder, I can't speak for everybody with with bipolar disorder, BPD. But when you get sick, it's consuming. And 
you have this life of going to work and a home life and friends and family that you don't want to disrupt because when I get sick, it's six months to a year that I'm sick and that I have to rehabilitate. So for me, going to the hospital was relief because I knew I was going to get better. At least I, I, there was hope that I was going to get better. But I was also really annoyed because I had to sacrifice everything I had to be there. So it's like a, in that mindset where you're sick, it could be win-win, it could be lose-lose, depending on where your brain's at in that minute. Right, right. Jeez, uh, oh, I'm glad uh, you know you were uh, you were there and uh, you're doing well uh, now. Thank you. What's uh, like? What were some of the strategies you used to cope to to you know, try to get yourself on on the on the right path? So there's two forms of therapy that I I tend to practice um, CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is your basic reaction and and how to manage your emotions, and then there's dialectical behavioral therapy, which is DBT. Which is what, um, which was the program I did after my stay at CAMH in 2017, and it was the best thing I ever did. And I tell everybody they need to do DBT, healthy or not, do DBT. It gives you tools to regulate your emotions, to learn how to react to the situation, and how to comfort and calm yourself down when you're starting to feel like you can't cope. It's life-changing. It's great. I, I swear by it and I share it with everybody that they should try it. No, that's uh, that's a great advice. Uh, what did, do you have any, did you ever have any, uh, sort of bad experiences with the mental health uh, care system at all? I mean, the general hospital, um, mental health care system, which is basically the ones that's where you get to refer to if you go to your family doctor and say, my, I had a parent, die and I'm having a really hard time coping with it what do I do and they send you to the general um wait times are astronomical like I like I said like when I left the general system and went to um women's college hospital which is where I'm receiving treatment now uh my 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 psychiatrist there was telling me that it was an eight-month wait list to get a psychiatrist in Ontario I mean I Mental health is never going to be a good experience mm-hmm. until you're healthy. The, the mental health care system has come a long way from when I was first um, introduced to it at 17 to now. Um, but I still feel like I said, it's got a long way to go. But other than that, no, like, I don't think I've really had a super negative experience. All the doctors I have ever dealt with have been amazing. They've been super caring and compassionate. Um, Mental health care nurses are, I'm telling you, if I could have one live with me, I would. <laughs> like, they're the most compassionate, understanding. I've seen abuse that they put up with, and they just smile and go, yeah, what else do you got? Like, it's, they're amazing professionals and uh, definitely deserve some recognition. Yeah, uh, I have a question. Uh, how were you able to uh, sort of find a, a work when you uh, went back to work? Uh, like a work uh, and, you know, mental health balance uh, in your life? That is still something that is, it's an ongoing practice. Um, We work in a really intense, stressful environment. 
Um, and for me, I have found that works better than somewhere there where my brain is not challenged. Um, part of being bipolar is you think a lot, you overthink, your brain doesn't stop. So I prefer to have a challenge in a high stress situation to keep my brain happy because it keeps me focused on something. Um, there's days it gets stressful and I get in my car and I just want to cry but you, you've just got to balance out your home life with that. So I, I love running. I've got two incredible dogs that keep me active. I've got a husband that is so much fun to be around. So I think that's where I have found my balance is in my home life outside of work. Work is work, home is home. And you really have to separate the two and just realize when you're at work, you're there to do your job. It is challenging uh, uh, for you know to, to ma- maintain any sort of uh, work life balance uh, for anybody. You know, yeah. it's uh, sometimes you can get yeah. too much into work, or you know, I mean, it's uh, it's all it's always a challenge. If, if I can go back to uh, um, you know, you said your bipolar disorder and borderline personality disorder. Uh, yes. Do you know, like, really early on in the day, like uh, for your bipolar disor- disorder, that like, th- okay, this is not going to be a good day. Like, how quickly do you know, and and what do you do to try to get yourself out of that? Because I'm sure, obviously, you want to get out of that. I think the days that I wake up and I'm not and I'm I'm cranky and I'm angry, I find an outlet that's necessary for that. Like if I wake up and I'm just feeling mellow and relaxed, I'm not going to want to go for a run or or go hit a, a punching bag. I'm going to want to sit and do a puzzle and drink my tea. So I think a lot of it is a finding an outlet to push that energy to. And B, using the skills that I learned in DBT. I know if I wake up irritable and I go get a coffee from Tim Hortons and the girl's driving me nuts and my order is wrong, that's not, she may have made my order wrong, but she's a human. And it's these skills that I've learned in DBT of constantly reminding myself that there's other people in the space and that I need to provide compassion for those people just as much as I need to provide compassion for myself. In other words, I, I've, I've kind of adopted a mantra of kindness is, is kindness, just kindness. Be kind. My mood isn't everyone else's fault. And I know sometimes I get snappy still and um, I get upset with myself for doing it. I've done it a couple times in the past couple weeks, but um, at the end of the day, I just need to forgive myself and move on. Yeah, it's uh, you know we all we all have mistakes or we all have off days. You know, it's uh, yeah. You can't be expected to be at this you know perfect level, and nobody can, of course. Nobody's uh, perfect, and we're all gonna have unfortunately our, our moments with that. And uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's uh, so with a yeah, borderline personality disorder. Uh, like, walk me through exactly like what's a um, sort of a tangible things that uh, you sort of go through uh, with having that. Uh, So borderline personality disorder, it's, it's primarily your inability to, to cope and um, control your urges, Uh, self-harm, gambling, sex addictions, alcohol and drugs. A lot of that stems from borderline personality disorder. And if you ask one of my therapists now, she'll tell you borderline personality disorder is actually a symptom of trauma and that you get borderline personality from trauma. Um, This is where the DBT really played in for me. I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder in 2017 during that hospitalization. But this is where the DBT comes in, is you learn how to 
control your urges. I started wearing an elastic band around my wrist. So whenever I got that urge to hurt myself or to yell and scream or, or take my aggressions out on someone else, I snapped the elastic. And that was, that was an excellent coping mechanism that got me through a few months before I was ready to move on to something a bit more tangible. So a lot of similarities between borderline personality disorder and bipolar disorder, but uh, borderline personality disorder, once you get it, get those tools and you, and you learn how to cope and deal with your stressors in life, it's very manageable. Well, I, I'm glad you say that. There's a, I have a family family member that I wish would, uh, you know, uh, sort of go to get a mental health evaluation because I, I, you know, I know she could be, you know, on a much better path and things can be better for her. But she sort of is resisting, I think, or maybe sort of yeah. um, may not necessarily resisting it, but um, try to fool herself. I, I guess would be the best way to put it into thinking that oh, it's oh, totally fine, no problem. I'm I'm great. Where it's like. You know, you we we you can we all can use help in some way, shape, or form. Of course, there's worse degrees of mental illness, but right. I feel like, you know, just like with anyone having an injury to their knee, well, you can have an injury to your health, mental health. It's the same sort of thing. It may not last as long, and of course, there's varying degrees to it. But I wish she would sort of, uh, sort of. I think I think there's it would probably I think it'd be easy to say probably it's correct to say that there's a lot of uh, denial yeah. that comes with it. Bro. Would, would I be right in saying that? Oh, absolutely. And it's not just denial of the person suffering, it's the denial of people around you. My mom, when at 17, she, when the doctor said she's bipolar, my mom was like, no, she's not. And for the longest time, she denied that I had something with a name to it. And she told me this after, after going through a decade of my mental health already. And I was I was floored. I was like, you didn't what? And she's like, I was in absolute denial. She wouldn't talk about it with anybody. She wouldn't, she didn't want to admit that she had a dog who was mentally ill. And, you know, there's that denial that comes from everywhere about that. And um, it's unfortunate that with denial in my experiences comes rock bottom. And that is unfortunately the state that some people have to get to before they realize they need help. And what would you say to someone who is feeling like defeated down pretty much at their, at their rock bottom? What would you say, uh, you know, to give them sort of, uh, something to look forward to, to know that you know, they can get out of the, out of that. Oh, that's a good question. I'm going to look at that as what would I have wanted someone to say to me? Life is hard. It is always going to be hard. When you have a mental illness, it's going to be harder. And there's going to be challenges that you're going to be facing that no one else in your circle can help you with. So why not go somewhere where they can help you because they know? Uh, A mental health facility, a hospital, a doctor, a therapist. Do not be afraid of what's going on in your head. I had knee surgery in 2019. To me, that was so much harder to deal with because it was a physical injury that I had never dealt with. I'm so used to dealing with my mental health that, you know, my physical, it's kind of like, eh, I don't know what to do, whatever. And it's the same thing for a lot of people dealing with their mental health. They're used to the physical where it's something visual and something tangible. Whereas mental health, it's, it's you don't know what's going on in someone's head. So... I think to those people, you just have to 
tell them to stop being afraid that something bad is going to happen if they go to a doctor. Nothing bad is going to happen. That's great advice. It, yeah, they're, they're, that's what they're there for, right? To, to, yeah. And I'm sure they've seen it all with you know so many different cases of, you know, because they're professionals, they've seen all, all the different cases. Exactly. You would go to the doctor if you had a stomach ache or if you had, you know, a cold or, or pneumonia. Why wouldn't you go to a doctor if your thought process and your emotions weren't where they should be? Uh, without question. Uh, how challenging, by the way, uh, has um, things been for you uh, during this COVID era where, era, sorry, where uh, pretty much everyone has to be in lockdown and staying home uh, pretty much most of the time? So I think... Uh, my husband and I have been in a really fortunate situation where we're both essential. So we've both continued working. Um, so we've been getting out and I've been, I've been getting that interaction at work. So that has been actually very beneficial for me. I mean, sitting inside, like my husband and I are at the age now where, you know, we've got every now and again, but like we're an old married childless couple and we, we do our own thing. So I think, not much in that term, in that respect has changed for us. I understand, though, how this is affecting so many people negatively. Um, I posted something on Facebook about, you know, like sitting inside and, and sitting in your head during this quarantine and and being alone. And, and, you know, I work shift work, so I spend my mornings alone. I go to work and I come home and my husband's in bed already. So there's a lot of isolation in my life um, on the regular, but I was talking to my mom and she's like, that thing you posted, she's like, I, that's how I feel right now during COVID. And I was like, well, that's my life always. <laughs> and uh, she was like, yeah, I'm getting an insight into what it is like for you living with mental illness. And, and she's like, I, this is a lot harder than I thought it is. Well, yeah, so especially I, especially those uh, like you said who aren't uh, working for an, an essential job uh, to actually yeah. be holed up in their place for you know many many months uh, just has to be absolutely horrible. Absolutely, and you know I I understand and I have so much compassion for everyone who's really having a hard time right now. It's unprecedented. What can those who who don't have mental illness do to help those who do have it? Uh, what, what can we? So how can I help someone? Uh, who might have it, uh, you know, without knowing the full extent of it. Listen, that is the number one biggest thing you can do is listen. And when you actually start to listen, you can hear what that person needs without them telling you. And I, I'm so fortunate to have my husband. I'm so fortunate for him. He is he is a, a rock in my life. When we first started dating, we started dating in 2011. And I was taking my pills one night and he's like, what are those? I was like, oh, they're my, you know, my happy pills. They make me feel good. And uh, he started asking the questions why. And I explained I have bipolar disorder. And he was sweet enough to come back three days later with like a stack of research that he had done on bipolar disorder. Like, I swear he knew more than me at that point. Um, and, and since then, he's been an absolute rock, and he's been my biggest advocate. And uh, he's just kind of learned what I needed. Like, it's, it's become second nature to him. But if you're dealing with someone that, you know, is a, uh, an acquaintance or a friend that you don't live with or aren't engaged with and seriously, um, just listening. 
listening is is number one. Have someone overstay the night. Have some pizza and some ice cream. Just do little things. Like it's, you don't have to go over the top and and make grand statements of of psychiatric assistance. Just listen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, what I try to do is uh, make it a point uh, for either different family family members or buddies. But just to just to check in, it doesn't even have to be much of a message at all. Just just a text. Just like hey. Yeah. How's it going? What's up? What's, What's going new? On? And most of the time, yeah. of course, people are just like, "Oh, nothing's new." Like, but at least that the, that they know that uh, you know you care enough to you know, message them or whatever, you know, because yeah, especially during these times, even more so. Just um, just reach out, and they may not get back or whatever, but just to know but, that uh, you know you care, obviously. Yeah, and, and yeah, like I said, just just listen, just listen, reach out. Hey, how's it going? You don't have to try and solve the world problems together. It's a, that's a pretty difficult feat, but just to know that there's someone who has your support that's, uh, in that moment is, is huge. That's uh, well said. And uh, I want to share a story actually uh, a couple of years ago uh, with you that I, of course, felt horrible about when I did it. And, uh, <laughs> but it's a, it's a good, it's a good, honestly, it's a good learning uh, example, I guess, uh, of, you know, you don't, no one ever fully knows what someone's going through. So to, to right. sort of, you know, tap the brakes on stuff. Uh, I thought it was a, a joke. Of course, we were, I don't even know the context of this, but uh, a couple times I had called you a princess instead of a queen. And you were like, don't call me that or whatever. <laughs> and obviously I was, you know, Oh, it's funny. You know, we have a good enough relationship. I you know I thought I was just, yeah. you know, I thought jokingly bugging you, but then of course I said it one more time and you, you, I could tell you're upset. I was like, Oh crap. Like, okay, Mike, like stop. Like, you know, that's not cool. And of course I haven't done it since because you never know what someone might be going through and, and to, you know, we were talking about bullying earlier. Obviously, I wasn't bullying you per se, but I was still saying that, wow. which of course is not cool. So it's like, don't uh, you know, just uh, think about what other people might be going through, and, and don't push yeah. people's buttons. I guess is the point I'm trying to make. Well, just know that I have long since forgiven you. And if you walked in tonight and called me princess, I would turn around and tell you that I'm a mother <laughs> queen. Uh, you know, it's, it's. But you are right. You you really don't know what people are going through, what's happening in their lives, which is why I always say kindness. Um, just try to be kind. Yeah. Compassionate. It, it goes uh, a, such a long way, you know? Yeah. But I hope you've forgiven yourself for that. <laughs> well, I mean, I hadn't, uh, we hadn't uh, until last night when we were talking at work, I hadn't actually brought that up because yeah. I've been like, you know, I have, you know, uh, of course I'd forgive myself, but I had thought about that for a few years. Like, ah, oh, you know, I, yeah. I just really wish I hadn't done that. You know, like, I, you know, it's not like I've been beating myself over uh, myself up over it. But it's definitely been something where I was like, oh, you yeah. know, like, why, man? Why'd you do that? You know, and uh, you know, no one's perfect, I guess. See, but we're, we're good. And I mean, it, it happened. It happened. I was in a bad place. And I mean, I, I apologize for maybe having overreacted to that. I don't think but, you did. But no. again, there was like that inability to control my emotions during that time. <laughs> it still happens. It still happens. Like I said, I've, I've gotten a little snappy in the past couple of weeks under pressure and stress and and I trust me, I, I feel just as horrible about it as the person I snapped on. Whoa, on someone's excited behind you there. Uh, the, they want some food. No, they're just playing. <laughs> Somebody wants to be in the yeah. podcast, perhaps. I don't know. They're like attacking each other and being dogs. <laughs> that was, you know, it's actually interesting because uh, after I left the hostel in 2017, I was off for six, I was off work for six months. Um, doing therapy and, and kind of reconstructing myself. And I was on the phone with the insurance company. And one of the questions they actually asked me was, do you have a dog? 
and, and I, you know, at this point, I was just skeptical of everybody and everything, and and paranoia was running deep. And I was like, uh, well, uh, yeah, I have two dogs, and they and they actually said that this is excellent, and that if you are recovering from mental illness, you should have a pet. They're wonderful. Apparently, pets are very therapeutical. Oh yeah, pets are just the the best, and they're obviously a member of the family. You know, I recently. Uh, my parents lost uh, two of her cats within a, a week span, uh, Rudy and Pumpkin, and uh, we knew they're you know they're older cats, and it was only probably mm-hmm. a matter of time. And yeah, it, you know, it, uh, there's I'm no without question, I'm sure I'm certain of it that there's a whole you know my parents' heart a little bit because they, they had these cats for like 18 years or whatever it was, you know. Yeah, and, they become uh, a part of your life. Absolutely, oh, they're 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 the best, right? Animals are. Yeah. I just can't imagine anyone ever like being cruel to animals. I just it just it doesn't even register to me that you could possibly do that. Yeah. You know, it's just, yeah. it's just brutal. I, I I don't even understand when people don't like animals. You know, that's that's a bad sign. If if, if you're like, yeah. yeah, I don't like animals, it's like, whoa, that's that's not a good sign. Well, you know. Yeah. yeah, but they, you know, they really do learn your emotions and your personality. And I mean, my my oldest is eleven, and he knows everything about me. He knows when I'm sad. He knows when I'm happy. He knows when I'm excited. He knows when. I need to just relax. Like he's a, he's a really good, uh, little companion that I got there. No, no animals. I swear, like you said, like they know when they're, you're happy or you're sad. Like I swear, uh, you know, there's times, you know, you may be feeling glum or upset or whatever. And the cats would come up on top of your lap and, you know, like, like I swear animals know emotion so well. Like sometimes people think animals are sort of silly or, or not silly. They're, they're maybe stupid and stuff like that. No, animals have yeah. a better, uh, in my opinion, uh, way of understanding human emotions, and sometimes humans do. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, they don't, their language is so primitive, yet they can still communicate and interact the same way we do. Like, they, they my dogs do this thing called a play bow, where when they want to play, they bow. And that's their signal to play. Which is happening a lot right now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can hear Sobe yipping in the background. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, I, I'll get you out of here on this. Uh, you wrote something for uh, Bell Let's Talk Day uh, a month yes, before I... your first hospitalization. Uh, share with us. Uh, Sorry, that my passage. third. It was it was before my third hospitalization in in 2017. Just some some context to this. By this point, I was I was really struggling with my depression, and I was getting really fed up and frustrated that I felt there was really no outlet for me to communicate how I felt. So I wrote this. I read something today that said, stop trying to skip the struggle. Who can skip their struggles? I can't. Clearly the author of this post has never struggled with mental illness. You have no choice but to work through the struggle. In fact, everything becomes a struggle. It starts with the struggle of getting out of bed, if you can make it. The sense of pointlessness of going through the motions to accomplish tasks that seem so meaningless in the grand scheme of things. Tasks that should bring joy and a sense of fulfillment all of a sudden bring frustration and uselessness. The result of that being the lack of energy or want to do said tasks. This is coupled with the physical pain that runs through your body unexplained. The battle of getting out of bed is won, barely. Only to look in the mirror and cry. Hold on a second. Toby! <laughs> Toby! Toby's like, there's only room for one hound dog on this podcast. That's what Toby's thinking. <laughs> okay, sorry. I'll pick up. The battle of getting out of bed is won. Barely. Only to look in the mirror and cry. 
Cry because what is looking back at you isn't someone you know. And someone you don't necessarily like at that. Someone lost and drowning in something fake just to not make everyone around them feel uncomfortable. There's struggle to make amends with the person long enough to get through what needs to be done at that moment, yet full well knowing that person is still there, perched on a shoulder throughout the day. Arrival at work brings more struggles. The fake smile so no one asks questions. Simple answer answers to questions about home life that are avoided with sarcasm and redirection. The crying in the bathroom stall because of the overwhelming feeling of uselessness and loneliness that has completely disrupted what needed to be done for the day. The loneliness being brought on selfishly, isolating oneself as to not bring up any negative emotions or dealings with the issues that may be at hand, feeling unworthy of any compassion, which is most likely to be interpreted as unauthentic anyways. The arrival home after a long day, day, and every day doesn't bring much solace. With the footsteps through the front door, the struggles continue with that unworthy feeling. Not worthy of the lovely house, the beautiful pets, and the spouse who will bend over backwards to make you feel comfortable. And then begins the struggle of self-hatred for not appreciating what you already have. What most people who work their whole lives for and still never achieve. The isolation that is even felt at home, with no energy or want to include your spouse in this downward spiral that keeps on spiraling. The best option at this point is sleep. Sleep to forget the aches, the pains, the struggles, the things that could be better and how fixing them just doesn't seem possible because of that nagging feeling that you have utterly failed as a human being, only to be awoken by an alarm clock to start the process over again. Some of us don't have a choice but to work through the struggle. For some of us, that's all we do. It's exhausting, especially when, when the fight has been going on for two years. I fought my manias and won, but fighting the depressions are so much harder. It's like digging yourself a huge comfy hole and then not being able to get yourself out when you're ready to rejoin the realms of safe and rational thought. Absolutely encourage people to work through their struggles, but always remember, you never know what those struggles are. Those struggles are real. My struggles are real. I can't skip them or ignore them, as most people can't. So why work alone? Why are we so afraid to be abrasive or intrusive when we see our friends, colleagues, or family members living in pain? When did we all become so afraid to feel? So today, on Bell Let's Talk Day, let's not just talk about the light, fluffy, safe places we create to help the healing process. But let's also talk about those dirty corners that are often ignored. Those dark, scary places that, unfortunately, some of us live in. Wow, that's, uh, wow, that's very poignant. So, uh, so well written. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's an amazing passage. Thank you. I, um, that, for me, was actually a day during depression, during a depression. That was what life was like for me. And um, I guess if anyone can take away from that, it's heal. Don't be afraid to heal. This isn't forever. Nobody's emotional state is permanent. So true. Yeah. Well, well, Heather, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to, to tell your story. Uh, it's an important message to get out there. Like you said, that you're not alone and you can get better. I think people that, the, that listen to this will really look up to you and have the courage and the strength that you did to tell your story. I'm so happy you're on a good path now and uh, proud to call you my friend. Thank you. And I am honored that you are my friend. And I am so overwhelmingly honored to have 
been able to tell my story on your podcast. I really appreciate the time. What an incredible woman Heather is to tell her story about how she's managing bipolar disorder and borderline personality disorder. She's an inspiration to all. And if this conversation helps even one person, then that's absolutely amazing. You are not alone. Feel free to talk to me at any time, anywhere. Things can and will get better. Thursday is Bell Let's Talk Day. All day, Bell will donate five cents to Canadian mental health programs for every applicable text, local or long distance call, every tweet and TikTok video using the Bell Let's Talk hashtag, every use of the Bell Let's Talk Facebook frame and Snapchat filter, and every social media view of the Bell Let's Talk Day video. Learn more at bell.ca slash let's talk. Thank you so much for listening to this important discussion about mental health on the H-Dog Podcast.